0: We've been working through 2 Corinthians, approximately one passage or one message from each chapter, more or less. And we come here to chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians, and the text is verses 11 to 15. And therefore, we want to remember the blessing of God for our salvation. I'll just read the text today. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who who boast about outward appearance and not about what is within the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of God, may he apply it to our hearts savingly and for our growth in grace, and shall we pray for God's blessing at this time upon his word, shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for this word, which is so compelling, which moves us and constrains us and moves us forward to know more about you, to love you, because you have first loved us, as we have heard in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll see an outline in your insert in the bulletin with the prayer requests on one side and the outline on the other, Christ's compelling love. You'll see Christ's love and the guilt of sin Christ's love and the power of sin. Now, the word fear is sometimes used in the Bible, even in this passage. But the fear that we have of God is not a fear of punishment, as it says in 1 John. But perfect love casts out fear. But we do have a godly fear, that is a godly reverence for God. And so in verse 11, it says, knowing the fear or the godly reverence of the Lord, we persuade others. It doesn't mean we fear punishment any longer, but we know that God is God, and we care about what he thinks. And therefore, Paul is saying, we know God has commissioned us, and we know he has given us this charge to preach to others the best we can, not boasting about ourselves, but rather, rather boasting about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he even goes on to express for us, therefore, that it's not fear of judgment that motivates us, but rather it is the love that Christ has for us. We find our text particularly in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. And that's the basic message or the theme that we have for us. The motive for the Christian life, as it works in Paul and in all Christians, comes from Christ's love for us. Now, with the world, you know that everything matters from the outside, what you look like, what you appear to be. But appearance does not necessarily reflect reality. We've got to look at the reality of our hearts time and again. And Paul, remember, was not particularly impressive. He was probably a little bit funny looking even. But he defends himself by saying, you know my heart you know that I have sought to serve you in godly reverence the best that I can, even if some people think we're crazy. Verse 13 says, if we are beside ourselves, that means if we are insane, so to speak, what other people think is our insanity, it is for God. But if we are in our right mind, which of course he really was, it is for you. And so Paul is explaining how faithful he was, despite slanderous attacks by unbelievers who sought to dissuade the church from listening to the apostle Paul. Paul, of course, after his conversion, knew very well about how he used to serve God in anger, really, and in slavishness. And so as he came to understand the gospel, he preached the gospel of peace and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as he did that, the church was multiplied. He's not teaching a doctrine of salvation by doing good works. God accepts us, not because of works that we have done, stained by sin, every one of them, but by the meritorious work of Jesus Christ. And he's not afraid to claim what God is doing in him as from God, whether other people think he's nuts or not. But he returns to this great theme of the love of Christ that we emphasize in every hymn and scripture reading, if you've noticed, in our worship service today. And we're f- first going to deal with the guilt of sin. That is, in Adam, all died to God, and we are counted as guilty. That means we deserve the punishment and the wrath of God forever and ever. It's hard for us to admit that. We sin daily. We stand condemned. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans chapter 3 says. And even at birth, we are sinners. Even before we've done anything that anybody could call good or evil, we have hearts that need to be reconciled to God. Ultimately, we all live for ourselves and not for God. But the love of Christ changes us. It puts us in a new state of mind, in a new frame of heart, in a new direction of life. And the word here, controls, the old King James says constrain, which is a pretty good word, but it's kind of an old-fashioned word. The NIV says compels. I like the ESV, which says controls. It doesn't mean restrain or hold back. That's where it's confusing. It actually means to push us forward, not to hold us back to push us forward. The love of Christ impels us. It pushes us. It constrains us. It keeps us from slowing down. It causes us to live for the Lord, and therefore, compelling or controlling is better translation. The original in the Greek means to hold or enclose or encompass or keep from dispersing a group of soldiers who are in battle. Now, you can imagine, if you are in battle, even if you have your fellow soldiers all around you, you're facing enemy fire, and you might be persuaded to run the other way. But the love of Christ, in this case, as we are Christian soldiers, keeps us from running the other way. It moves us forward. It keeps us from scattering. So it surrounds us and directs us in the way that it should go. Notice again, it is the love of Christ that constrains us. And this does not mean at first love for Christ, but his love for us. Remember, First John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. So in the midst of the battle of the Christian life that we face every day, the Holy Spirit gives us confidence in the battle because we remember that he has loved us and in his son has given himself for us in that love. Now, we must not think that his, his love is just an example. Some people think that we are saved by seeing that Christ loved and so we should just follow his example. It's more than that. We can't follow his example. We have failed to do what Christ has done. But rather, the cross gives us that demonstration of love that changes us, that moves us forward, that is the power of God unto salvation. We have the love of Christ actually accomplishing our redemption. How is it that Christ stayed upon the cross and didn't come down as his mockers challenged him. If you're really the Son of God, come down. No, I love my Heavenly Father too much, and I love my people all the way to the end. So I will not do that which might give me relief. I love all the way to the end. This love is displayed in the cross of Christ most particularly. In Ephesians chapter 3 it says, you are to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. There it is again. You're to be rooted in love, and you're to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So we don't just know something, we love God. This is why Christianity is not a mere intellectual religion or understanding of truth, the way the Gnostics might say. It is a radical change of heart and direction whereby we who once loved ourselves and loved wickedness might love God and love holiness. Well, we have to start thinking in more particular ways, especially as we partake of the Lord's Supper today. How is it that Christ's love is so great? How wonderful is this love? First of all, and you'll see in your outline, he loves greatly. When you love someone that loves you back, when you love your family, that love is more or less natural. But the Bible says that Christ's love is demonstrated, or God's love is demonstrated in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, he died for rebels, people that were shaking their fists at God and saying, I don't care about you. And he says, I don't care what you think. I am going to love you. I am going to die for you. And I'm going to change you. This love, therefore, is great. He loves sinners. With this great and persevering love, Christ works through this great compassion he has for us, which leads us to the second point. He loves greatly in passion, that is, intensity. Remember, God, in Christ, gave himself up voluntarily. He became a poor man. He veiled his glory. He was given over to godless men. He was put to death, despising the shame. How did he do that? Because he had such great passion for his people that he was willing to lay down his life. And Paul reflects that passion in his writing here to the Corinthians. Thirdly, he loves tenderly, tender compassion. Love is great, but love is also tender, as a father pities his children. The tenderness of a mother's love or a father's love for your children cannot be broken. We find it is a pitying love, He was good friends, for example, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And therefore, when he came to raise Lazarus, he wept that they were so sad. He wept that Lazarus had died, but it was for the purpose of glorifying the Savior. He had sympathy, and that means a compassion or a feeling with someone else. When someone hurts, we hurt. That's called sympathy because we were dying in sin. We were victims of of the devil. We are prey to our own sinful natures, and we're led astray like sheep that are lost. He pities us. He has mercy upon us. He says, what if I were in that condition? And he loves us so much that he puts himself in the place of sinners in great and pitying love his love is mentioned many times we sometimes don't notice it remember the story of the rich young ruler the rich young ruler comes and jesus says you need to keep the law and he says i've kept the law from my youth up now of course jesus wanted him to know that he had not kept the law but here the poor rich young ruler had self-righteousness. He thought he had kept the whole law. And before he told him what he had to do to prove that he was selfish and had not kept the law, it says Jesus looked at this rich young ruler, and you might forget that it says it there, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that remarkable? He looked at this rich young ruler so proud, like Paul. I've kept the law from my youth up. As to the law, Paul would say about himself, blameless. Here's Paul himself persecuting Christians. And God has mercy upon Paul. He had mercy upon this rich young ruler. And and we trust that someday, maybe, that rich young ruler turned to the Lord. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, the crowds were following around all the time. And they were a bit of a rabble. They were kind of selfish, and they realized they would get a free lunch if they just hung around Jesus. And sometimes they weren't really listening to what he said. But it says in Mark 6 that looking at the crowds that followed him, he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, compassion is the same as sympathy to have a passion with or for these people. I look upon them with love and compassion, even though all they want is a free lunch. He healed the sick. He fed the 5,000, and he fed the 4,000, and he healed the leper. And all of this was because of his great love and compassion. He is like a gentle shepherd who restores our souls Isaiah 49 is a famous passage that speaks of the love of a woman for her nursing child. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Can you imagine a mother not caring for a child that she has born and who's hungry and needs her? Well, some women actually might do that. And so it says, even these, even though some... Hard-hearted mothers might forget, although it's hard to imagine, yet I will not forget you. In other words, my love is greater than that of a mother to her child, of a father to his children. Great compassion. It says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Or Psalm 103, I am slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness as he revealed also to Moses on Mount Sinai as a father pities his children. That's why God loved us and gave himself for us. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's how it is that husbands gradually change from being so self-centered that it's hard to stand some of these guys, including myself and all of you men, We all like to serve ourselves, but when we're married, we say we want to love someone else, even as Christ loved me. That's what changes you. That's what turns you from a selfish lout, as Luther said, of himself, to one who loves your wife and your family, which wouldn't have happened otherwise. How can we ignore such a love? That's the kind of love that changes us. Also, he loves personally, and we see this further in our text. It says that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died, and was raised. The meaning of all here means those among those who are equally lost. God loved all of them that they might serve God. And so this is another example of the word all applying to all of God's people in this context, all of his own. My sheep hear my voice and follow me and they shall never perish. But what this means is he loves us specifically and personally, each and every one that they might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The Bible says he calls his sheep by name. Now, of course, he knows your earthly name, but we are told that we'll be given new names in glory, whatever that will be, some knowledge of us beyond what our parents might know. And he calls his sheep by name. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you've done. And he loves you anyway, and he calls you to follow him. That's because of his great and personal love for you. And finally, he loves eternally. Eternally, it is an effectual love. We are kept by the power of God. Those whom he loves, he will continue to love. My sheep hear my voice and follow me, and they shall never perish. And I will never let anyone pluck them out of my father's hand. Though they might be tempted astray, I will bring them back. I love them eternally and effectually with an everlasting love. Christ loved Paul that way. Paul understood it, and now he's telling us that Christ loved in all of these ways, greatly, tenderly, to sinners, personally, and eternally. By this great, eternal, personal, powerful, tender love for sinners, we live, and we die in him. Christ's persevering love is in our rebellion, and our love now comes out of our new hearts. Where once there was rebellion, now we are submitting to the Lord. Christ's passionate love comes to us in our great distress, and we think nobody else can understand us, and nobody else can deliver us. He will do so. Christ's pitying love in our great weakness, we are but dust. From dust we were made, and to dust we shall return. And great weakness plagues our entire lives. But Christ pities us in our weakness. And his personal love towards each of us by name means that he will never forget you. And his love toward us in eternity means he will never leave you or forsake you. Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I love by faith in the Son of God, wait for it, who loved me. He says it again. This is this great doctrinal passage in which we died with Christ because he loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see we often overlook this love. Imagine a scene between God and you, and he says to you, have you obeyed my commandments? And we must say, no, I have not obeyed your commandments. I have broken them in thought, word, and deed. What's the penalty for sin according to the scripture? The wages of sin is death. Have you paid me? for what you have done, and you say, I cannot pay anything, not a single penny. But God now says to you in Christ, my son, I sent my only beloved son into the world, and I paid the debt that you owe. I died, and you live And even though you might look alive to people in the world, you're dead in sin by nature. And now you're living in Christ. Notice that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake and in love died and was raised. Now you will notice the theme has shifted a bit from Christ paying the price to moving us forward, constraining us to follow him and living for him. He died for us, but that means we now have to live for him. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, this great love is not only a great relief and joy, God loved me anyway, But now I say, how can I serve this God who has so saved me? That's why the Ten Commandments introduction is so important. I am the Lord your God who loved you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now listen to what I have to say to you. This great love pushes us in the right direction, actually enables us to do what we otherwise would not do. God first loved us, but now what? We love him. He first loved us, but because he loved us, now we are going to love him. And the Bible says if we don't love God, we don't know God. If we don't love our brothers, we don't know God. Because God is love, and his great love has been brought to us in Jesus Christ. Now, the power of sin is horrible, the guilt of sin, of course is that which condemns us to hell forever. But the power of sin means we are full of misery. Our lives are full of grief and sorrow. We're not only guilty, but we're trapped in sin's evil grasp. We not only need forgiveness, but we need release from the prison that sin is. Imagine a prisoner. He hears that the president has pardoned him for his sin, or his crime in this case, but the jailer never opens up the cell he stays in jail well how does that make any sense if you are forgiven if you are pardoned then you are set free from bondage from that prison cell in which you once found yourself completely enslaved we are now to be dead to sin where once we were dead in sin Christ's power comes to us again in love that we might live not for ourselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We die to sin and we live to righteousness. Well how does that happen? Well it first means we ought to and we shall love God. If we love him We will keep his commandments. We love because he first loved us. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The realization that Christ not only died but loved us means we believe and are delivered from the curse of the law. And we are compelled now to live no longer for ourselves. I must serve you, God. How can I not? Tell me how to give you thanks. Tell me what I should do now that I'm set free from jail. Am I supposed to get back into crime and get thrown into jail again? No, I want to be free, not only from jail, but for the crimes that sent me there. And I want to go and live for the Lord. And that's how we want to live according to God's word. We want to be delivered from displeasing him, from lying, from swearing, from stealing, from Sabbath breaking, impelling us to live for him, loving him, serving him, praising him, witnessing for him, giving of our income, giving of our strength, giving of our time, spreading the gospel to others, living to please Christ and not yourself. You see, the love of Christ not only changes you, but lives within you, and Christ demonstrates to the world the love of Christ for the world, demonstrating that the gospel is for all who believe. Therefore, we shall, and we ought to, love not just God, but one another living and walking in love for our brothers. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another, 1 John three twenty three, just as he has commanded us, John four eleven, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Have you gotten the point? It's not that difficult. God loved us, we love him, and we love others. See that central teaching of the Bible? is so glorious. We know we can't live without love, even in a human sense, but we cannot live without God's love. We ought to praise him. We ought to thank him, and let's take the time to think, how can I serve him better? That's why the Lord's Supper is so important. We are thinking about Christ giving up his life for us in love, and it comes home to us in a new and powerful way. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it hits us again, or it ought to, This is what Christ had to do. This is what he did. I hope you are amazed by the love of Christ, his persevering, passionate, pitying, personal, predestinating love, where you can say to God, you loved even me. And he says, yes, dear child, I love even you. Now live for me. Shall we pray? Lord, unto him who has loved us and washed us from sin, to you be the glory forever. We thank you for this great love that now moves us forward in teaching us to love you in Jesus' name.